and one, two, three, four. Okay, so here we are getting into it. Sitting in the offices of the counseling department. Now, the counseling department here at Asbury has kind of a fancy new name that myself and almost everyone mess up. Could you fill us in on what the the new name of the counseling de- the counseling center? The count- counseling here center. Is? It is the uh, Van Tatenhove Center for Counseling. Van Tatenhove Center for Counseling. Now, that's a good name. Now, the voice that you just heard is of Dr. Russell Hall, who is the director of training for counseling and pastoral care here at the seminary. He is also a licensed psychologist in the state of Kentucky, and we're really happy to have him as our guest on the show as we are guests in his office this morning. Happy to be here. Thanks for coming on. Of course, I would be here anyways, so I'm happy <laughs> to have you here with me. <laughs> it's true. We didn't chase you out of your own office no. so that just the two of us could record. Now. If you were listening to our last episode, you know that we're on the topic of mental health and especially mental health in the church, in seminaries, and the conversation around where those pieces intersect. So as I understand, you were not always a psychologist. You had some sort of past experiences, some past vocational tracks before that. Yeah, actually a few. Uh, when I left, when I graduated from college, I went into uh, youth ministry, so I was a youth pastor for a few years, worked for uh, a parachurch organization called Youth for Christ uh, Campus Life for a few years, and then also was a youth pastor in um, my home denomination, which was is the uh, Evangelical Covenant Church in Minnesota. So I did that for a few years, and then uh, kind of migrated away from that and went into graphic design, which is something else I enjoy doing, art. So uh, uh, kind of picked up um, with the beginning a career in graphic design, which worked really well for me. And, um, but I kind of came to a crossroads uh, a number of years back where I didn't really see myself doing graphic design work at the age of 60. So um, I decided to change careers. And so through a process of just kind of exploring what I thought I did well, um, found out that kind of talking to people uh, one-on-one was something that I thought I did pretty well, which kind of led to the idea of moving into counseling. And it really entered the field of psychology without really knowing exactly what I was getting into. Um, I was working full-time as a graphic designer and just took one psychology course at the community college because my undergraduate, I had no psychology Because where are you all. from again? I'm from Minnesota. So was the community college there in your no, local area? it was actually here. Oh, we, here. My wife and I had moved here um, by that time. Uh, just to be closer to our families. My, my family lives in this area, and uh, her family lives in the uh, Indiana. Mm-hmm. And um, um, never had any psychology courses, so I just took one course. I found out I liked it and just kind of continued on from hooked. there. Yeah, yeah, just kind of continued from there. So um, it, w- it just kind of began down the road and, and uh, just kept going. Found found opportunities to get a, get off at times after getting my master's, um, and a few other off ramps available. But I just decided to keep pursuing the PhD, and um, and happy I did. And where did you receive your PhD from? Uh, University of Kentucky, counseling psychology program. Mm-hmm. So my master's uh, there, uh, specialist in education there, and PhD. So that's 
a couple of really big field shifts going yeah. from youth ministry crazy <laughs> then into graphic design okay i guess that's a, a little understandable maybe you were doing some creativity work in the youth ministry but then from graphic design to psychology is quite the jump so what was it about that course that most grabbed you uh that i could do it um, that uh, I took, you know, I, I never took a psychology course. I have no, knew nothing about it. And as I entered in it, I found out that I could do it. Um, I could. And so from there, what I did is I essentially just quit my job um, and went to, I had to take psychology undergraduate courses in order to get into the program. So for about a year right. and a half, I just took all psychology courses at UK. And each step was really kind of a verification process. Um, mm. As I moved further into it, um, there was just kind of validation that I could do it. I, you know, I had an aptitude for it. And then from there, just moved into the graduate work and beyond. What was kind of your impression of psychology based on those courses? And how did it just kind of clarify and expand as the longer you went in your education? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I. I you know, I was rather ignorant going into the process. Uh, I really didn't, I mean, psychology is such a broad field, and I really didn't understand how broad, the compl how was it interconnected together. And so I never really had a good understanding of what, like, counseling, how counseling fit within the discipline of psychology. Um, so probably went in with more of a romantic idea of, mm. of being a psychologist, which, by the way, wears off pretty darn fast. <laughs> is, um, was this shaped by, like, you know, like a, a cultural stereotype, like TV and books, or is it was it what, what was this romantic, idealized vision coming from in your head? Yeah, I mean that's that's a good question. I, I, I honestly can't give you like an overt example, but I have to believe it was shaped um, by just you know pop culture and and things that I experienced um, in the past that kind of romanticize the idea of maybe what a psychologist is or what a psychologist does. So that's really kind of the foot in the door. But I, you know, I think most of us kind of enter into kind of professional fields with that kind of blind Easy view. Yeah, we have our blinders on. We have a kind of romantic idea of what it means to be this thing mm. uh, or this person. And uh, of course, reality hits eventually, and it becomes a much more complex process. But um, I think mm -hmm. that's how we get our foot in the door. You know, we yeah. kind of we're kind of blind to it to begin with, and then yeah. Then we're, then we're in, and now we have to stay in. <laughs> <laughs> You're locked in. We're locked in because we put so much time into it, so it's more painful to turn For back. For some people, money as well. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Everyone imagines kind of being the uh, Indiana Jones-style professor until you get into academia. You imagine yourself being the superstar pop psychologist until you're sitting in talk therapy but at that point. Are you invested enough to stay? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So kind of the old saying, in for a penny, in for a pound. Yeah. And the uh, psychological principle behind it is called sunk cost, uh, which is a principle that basically says that once you get far enough into something, it's more painful actually to turn back than it is just to keep going. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of one of those principles that keeps us motivated and moving forward. Yeah. Now, for those of you who've known some of my history, you might be saying, wait, is Dr. Hall serious? Because I had a very similar track leading me to be in this program. I was a graphic designer trained at University of Georgia and was working in the field before I decided to be a youth pastor. So we swapped those we two. <laughs> That's and I was a youth pastor for about five years before I realized, based on the 
romantic allure that, that Dr. Hall is doing his best to shatter that I wanted to go into <laughs> counseling. <laughs> so it's pretty funny just how there must be some sort of connection between those three fields because the odds that the two of us would have gone through such a similar pathway and find ourselves going to counseling, talk therapy areas, is it's kind of blowing my mind a little bit. Yeah, that is actually quite a coincidence. And I'm, I'm recalling we had that conversation early on uh, at some point when we, when we connected. It was during my uh, Gate 2 interview, uh, which is, for those of you outside of the department, um, essentially a professional development meeting where the professors read a lot of your material and decide if you are ready uh, emotionally, knowledge-wise, in a stable place to go and begin internships, practicums. And so Dr. Hall initially said, no, there's no way you're ready, but I was able to bribe him. <laughs> and he said, yeah, that's enough. I'll, I'll allow you to go through. <laughs> I'm still waiting for you to pay off on the bribe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, I'm recalling that when I had my, uh, my interview for my master's uh, program in psychology, I was, I was asked a question about, you know, how, how does a graphic designer get to this place? How does that equal? And I, I don't remember what I said. I'm sure I said something related to, uh, that, you know, as a graphic designer, you have to learn to problem solve. You have to problem solve and you have to oftentimes think outside the box. And that's kind of the skill as I thought about transferableness into changing careers and moving in a different direction. That's how I kind of conceptualized it, at least then. Mm -hmm. it, it's interesting for me because I come from a charismatic evangelical background and one of the, you know, not to, to broad brush, but sometimes there can be an, an anti-intellectualism and so and less less credentials is better for ministry you know you're not you're not from the seminary you're not from you know you're you're getting it straight from the good old book you know and I think one of the things for me is seeing how pastors without a even just a basic counseling toolkit especially in the charismatic evangelical world could totally go off spiritualize an issue where it shouldn't be you know, that just would be one example. And so part of my desire to come to seminary was, man, I really want to load up my electives with some counseling courses so that I can be prepared for this. And it's interesting because the more counseling courses I've done, the less I feel equipped to ever make that judgment. And, you know, I remember them telling me, like, you know, your role is really just to create an emotional bridge and send them to an expert. And if you're meeting with them more than two or three times, like, you're failing them. I'm thinking, what? I wanted to be this Messiah, this good pastor that's educated, <laughs> gets his PhD, can do all the work. And now I feel like the more I spend time with Austin and my roommate Spencer and talking to students here and professors, I'm kind of sitting there going, I think the best thing I can do is get out, get out of this lane and really just leave it to the people that know what they're doing. Is that, is that too much of a withdrawal or do you think that's healthy? Well, I think there's a partnership, um, a built-in partnership that is there, and I think that pastors uh, uh, have to have a measure of discernment of what their capabilities are and uh, what their, you know, what their job description looks like. I guess when it comes to working with people, but really to kind of recognize their capabilities of what they're able to accomplish in that particular setting, and then to know when. Uh, we, the, the person needs to be moved to another resource or an additional yeah. resource. And uh, I certainly don't conceptualize it as the pastor passing the football off and then just backing away. Mm. The mm. pastor has, still has a very big role in, yeah. in follow-up and providing spiritual care and uh, nurturance and um, you know pastoral uh, care to yeah. a person who may be seeking counseling on 
with a professional in the community. Yeah. So I see it as a partnership. Okay. That's a great point. And since we've kind of transitioned into that church environment, you've been in Wilmore, you said, for about 25 years. I think so. I have to do the math, but it's probably close to that. How long have you been in the counseling department here at Asbury? Uh, I am on either my eighth or ninth year Okay. here. Now you've got eight or nine years in Christian academia as far as counseling, but you, I'm assuming, were still very much a part of a church community as a psychologist beforehand. I was. I mean, I was practicing my my craft, and then I would belong to you know just local church. So so, um, uh, but to be honest, at that time, I I really didn't see a lot of things terribly integratively at that at that point in my mm-hmm. career. There's a developmental process that I've gone through um, to uh, to see how the two kind of work hand in hand and overlap. So at that time in my career, I did definitely mm-hmm. see them kind of separate in a lot of ways. Yeah, that, that, that's helpful for me thinking this way because I think before where there was an over-conflation of the, of the categories of counseling and pastor, almost sometimes from my background you think of, oh, the, the pastor probably is the counselor, he's probably, the, or, or the pastoral staff, that, you know, um, to kind of now seeing the value of this exp- of expertise and even within counseling, just psychology, you know, psychiatry, all the different, different kind of nuances, it's like, I, I have this tendency to overly compartmentalize where I don't fully have a vision for how these things work together as someone that wants to be a pastor. Yeah, uh, and I guess that partnership to me doesn't look any different than how a pastor would interact with any other resource within the community mm-hmm. um, or with its parishioners um, or with other pastors for that matter. You you network and, and uh, create alliances and figure out who who you know, on a practical level, who's going to be your pa- your pulpit supply, who's going to come mm-hmm. in and fill for you when you need to because you're going to be gone, or who's going to come in and help out with um, with whatever committee that's put together to re-energize or re-envision things that need to happen within the church. You know, your pastors are always partnering with those pieces yeah. to bring them in to supplement um, the things that they need help with. Yeah. And I think mental health-wise, it's the same thing. You're looking, yeah. you're looking to find ways to partner with those resources. So if in the past you saw them as sort of non-overlapping areas, psychology and church life, but now you said that you're more integrated. So what's changed and what was that process like? Yeah, that's a good question too. Um, I don't know that I saw them necessarily as separate. I just didn't know really how to connect the two. And it really kind of goes back to, you know, when I, when I was kind of in your spot, Austin, in my own training, because I went to a secular school um, where, the, you know, spirituality, theology just wasn't present at all. It was a very much a secular world. And uh, so I had this Christian part of me that, you know, came to class and um, interacted with my fellow students. And, uh, but I didn't really know how to bring that piece into my what the world I was beginning to acquire the knowledge I was beginning to acquire in psychology mm-hmm. I didn't know how to do that so I, I knew that they that they were together I just didn't know how to make them together mm-hmm. and so they really just kind of like existed parallel with each other um, for a good long time and I think I think part of of the integration process for me began to when I just started asking myself, who am I supposed to be in the counseling room with my clients? So I'm, I'm functioning in a secular agency. Um, 
I may I may have clients who have have a Christian or religious backgrounds, especially in Kentucky. And especially in Kentucky, it's part of the uh, much, very much the culture, and uh, so I can very much relate to the language and the stories they would give me. Um, but of course, I'm in a secular uh, environment, and so I can't you know default to youth pastor and start working with them. Right. Um, so really began just asking the question: Who am I supposed to be to this person in this room? And, you know, I'm trained to be kind of a humanist. That's my training, be a, human, a humanist in front of this person. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I start to really kind of look at that, and well, that's not really a clear and accurate perception of how I really see myself, then who am I to be this person and, and realize that I'm to be Christ in this room and, uh, and that, um, that that's, that's part of my role with this client, even in this very secular experience that I'm, I'm to be uh, to them um, the embodiment, you know, of, of, our, of our, our God to this person, even if I don't say anything religious to them. Mm-hmm. I can still act and be, uh, exhibit the qualities uh, that uh, we, we often see as kind of Christian, if you will, the fruits of the Spirit. Do you see that as incarnational? Is that kind of how you conceptualize it? At the time, no, but now, yes. Um, now, uh, through uh, you know j- just my own integrated process, I do mm. see that very much as incarnational. Then it was, it was almost kind of more of uh, it was it, an interesting kind of head knowledge and then kind of an experiential piece. So, so while that theological piece, I was I was acting it out, but I really didn't fully understand uh, what what what. It was I was actually believing, other than I needed to be this, be this for my client. Yeah. Um, and then the other th- the other piece, the flip side of that, really was um, is kind of a Matthew twenty five piece. That's the al- other place where I began, where I started to recognize that the people I work with really are on many of them are on the fringe of society. And then having spent um, time working in patient facilities uh, for people who are have severe mental illness issues. I started to challenge myself to 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 the idea that as much as you do to the least of my brethren, you do it unto me, and so that started to uh, begin to infiltrate my how I tried to convey my craft and and work with people to see that that not only am I the embodiment in this room, but the person I'm looking at is as well. Mm-hmm. You know, they're the the image of God as well, mm-hmm. and so to connect with them and to see them in that way um, became an important part of my own um, my own educational process of kind of integrating the two. Do you? I love that that frame of reference. Having that frame of reference, that incarnational frame of reference, or caring for the margins of society. When you have that frame of reference, do you see your toolkit as secular? Do you like thinking of it that way, or not necessarily? Yeah, that's a good question. Do you think psychology too. is secular? Like, you know, well, yes. Well, I mean, I as a discipline, <laughs> it is. As a discipline, it's <laughs> yeah. secular. But what I mean is, is it secular to have to use a, a psychological toolkit? No, uh, because theologically, uh, you know, I understand that all truth is God's truth, and which is really the foundational piece that we all need to begin with uh, when we're talking about integrating the two. Um, so that whatever, whatever. Uh, we arrive at in terms of uh, 
what helps the client, what truth is there that we're able to use with the client is God's truth. Um, it's all things come from God. And, mm-hmm. and so um, while, while uh, I was taught to think in terms of unconditional positive regard to my clients to connect with them, and that's very much taught from a secular humanistic perspective in my program, the change really began to, uh, for me to realize that, well, I'm able to do that because that was first given to me. Mm-hmm. You know, that God, God has extended to me uh, this, this willingness to connect. And so mm-hmm. theologically, I believe that I'm able to extend that to someone else. If that is true, then to me, that's, that is a truth that, that mm-hmm. I stand on yeah. working with clients. Because, because one of the questions we kind of delve into in our first podcast on mental health was, you know, these kind of, whether you have biblical psychology, like, or I don't know, what, what do you Bib- call it? Biblical counseling or biblical new counseling, counseling. Yeah, yeah, and, you, and, and then this more purely secularized type of counseling. I don't have the, the terminologies for that. Kind of levels of explanation psychology. And But it seems to me that one of the things, obviously there are tons of pitfalls to only restricting yourself to scripture, but what I, what I would say is it seems like one weakness of of a of a secular totalitarianism per se where it, it is would be one it it doesn't actually recognize the value of the religious person you're dealing with that they have religious categories and a religious language and meaning and experience and to fully compartmentalize that or to fully see that in a negative light is probably not healthy working with the client and I want to ask your opinion on that it's a loaded question but secondarily there's a lot of people in counseling that are religious themselves, and even though there are certain, there's a code of conduct, their religious meaning and framework does influence their motives and how they see their work. We, we're, we live in a religious world, and so that's not really a question. That's kind of just a, an eyesight. <laughs> it's, an eye, like it's an angle on this issue. Any thoughts related to what I said? Constructive, critical. I'm just curious. So, so yes, yeah, psychology would claim that the the way that it's it would claim this kind of humanistic secular viewpoint mm-hmm. and and in some some ways atheistic and certainly agnostic perspective of how it works with people it would claim that that's developed within uh, our culture and our western world and that's the good that we give to people and there are plenty of people who operate from that perspective and there are even christian counselors who haven't figured out how to bring the two together and operate from that perspective um I don't. I don't theologically see it that way. I see. I see that it's it's the discovery and unpacking of God's truth in this world, and that's what's to me mm-hmm. uh, kind of communicated and given. Yeah. Um, so so I know that's not answering your question directly, but yeah. that's probably because I didn't understand your question. I guess I guess my question is is to to break it up into two would be when you have religious people you're dealing with, whether they're Christian, Muslim, Buddhist, list goes on. Do you fully compartmentalize their religious framework and their beliefs, or do you actually deal with thinking about them as religious human beings? Uh, yes. So, so uh, I think the counsel, the counseling world would compartmentalize, um, but in my training uh, and kind of where I moved to, no, I want to see the whole person, and so that's very much a vital part of who they are, regardless of what religious tradition they come from. So I do want that to be into the room because those are important stories that mm-hmm. they have that can lend itself to them pursuing whatever health or healing that they need. Yeah. Um, so I do want to, and ethically, 
uh, ethically so. We, we certainly train our students to think that way as well. It's it true. is ethical to treat the whole person, uh, not to compartmentalize them and to only see the, psych- the, the emotional or the psychological or the social. It all, it all weaves together to create mm-hmm. a, this unique person and their unique story and their, their unique problem as well. Mm-hmm. And I'm currently doing my internship at a secular agency, a community mental health agency here in Lexington, and everything is person-centered treatment. Well, if you want to treat the person, then you have to acknowledge the way that their mind works mm-hmm. and all of the aspects of that person. Their religious beliefs are not some external force that operates on them, but it's an internal motivator. It sort of shapes everything that they think and do. It shapes their behavior, their cognitions, their problems, and their strengths. And I feel like you were saying, to exclude their religiosity would be to exclude a part of the person and to remove the part of the person from the center of therapy. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree with that. And and uh, an interesting story around that would be a number of years ago, um, and this probably, I don't remember the timeline, but it, it would have been a number of years ago. I was working in the Louisville area. Louisville has a fairly large um, immigrant population of Iraq, uh, Iraq's uh, citizens. Yeah. Uh, they've been displaced by war, and so they've been most of them spent time in Saudi Arabia camps, and then they came, were placed over here. And so I had a, f- a number of uh, men uh, who came from, um, from Iraq, and the interesting piece is how I was able to kind of connect with them, which is difficult, because we obviously have a language barrier, and sometimes I had to have a translator in the room. Um, they're trying to figure out how to live in this kind of new world. I'm trying to figure out how to understand them. They mm-hmm. see me as Christian, and they don't see me that because I am a Christian, but because that's kind of the cultural piece that separates our world because they're Muslim. And um, for many of those men, the only way that I was actually able to connect with them was to give them space to talk about their faith mm-hmm. and their religion mm-hmm. intentionally, and in some cases, allow them to try and convert me. And so that, in doing so, they, th- that we were able to kind of connect and, and, uh, mm-hmm. and develop relationship and, uh, and begin to kind of formulate um, a path to help them wherever they need to go just by allowing that piece to be present and to honor it mm-hmm. um, and accept it as part of who they are and then uh, find ways to kind of meet together totally. like, clinically and work together. Yeah. And now you're the only uh, Muslim member of staff at Asbury Seminary. I am, yes. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Praise Allah. (laughs) (laughs) We're not going to edit that out. That's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Now, we've talked a lot about from the side of the therapist and how understandings have changed about integration, about how much faith to bring in and the best ways to do that. During your time here, do you have some insight on how the conversation around psychology or mental health has changed for your average church layperson? Uh, Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, I don't, I think churches have become a bit more, are more sophisticated and savvy when it comes to mental health issues compared to where it was 20 or 30 years ago. Uh, I still think there's a long ways to go because I still think it's still very much a stigmatized piece in many churches. 
Um, but the idea of a of a church going person seeking counseling, you know, 30 years ago was much more stigmatized than it is now, uh, at least in, in my opinion. Um, so, so I think that that part has become more open in terms of that resource available to the church, and I think pastors are certainly using that resource more. Um, but I think the pieces that haven't changed um, as much is how mental health is viewed uh, in churches. I think you still have pockets very much that see it as nothing but a spiritual issue, um, that you just need to pray about it in order for something to get better. And while that is definitely part of the process, if we treat the whole person, we want that to be part of of, um, of their process moving toward health. Um, there are other pieces to that, obviously. Um, the other piece I think that still doesn't happen a lot is really just kind of bringing it out in the church and talking about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, because there, if you look at the statistics, um, you have a lot of church-going people who are struggling with a mental illness mm-hmm. uh, at some point, whether it's depression or anxiety or something more severe, and oftentimes it's kept and hidden away yeah. um, for reasons of not wanting to you know, be looked at differently. And I think that still exists a lot in church because it's still not just talked about a lot. And I think part of that is just simply because pastors have not quite acquired the tools to do that yet. Um, and I can't say that across the board. I mm. know that there are pockets here and there in churches with more sophisticated uh, type of setups to be able to engage that. Mm. So, so for example, uh, maybe larger churches that have celebrate recovery type of groups in their uh, it are churches that are, are saying, you know, we need to be talking about uh, mental health issues among our, our people and giving them resources and then hosting you know, those resources within the church. So churches are doing that more than they used to, but there's still, I think, a good ways to go with that. Mm-hmm. So to a lot of our audience who are future pastors, students here at the seminary, people who are at churches all over the country, for people who are trying to discuss mental health issues in their church environments and aren't really sure how to go about it, do you have any advice for them? Well, uh, that's a good question. Um, I think one thing that future pastors need to do and kind of make a priority, um, and it goes back to kind of the beginning of our discussion as you were talking about your experience of what counseling may look like in the church, is really to begin to network and develop a good referral source that Mm -hmm. uh, they are able to use, which means pastors need to go into the community and find those connections um, and talk with people to find those connections. so I think that's a good place to start is just developing a good referral source. I think also to uh, to to look at kind of the, I mean, culturally we have um, kind of these opportunities for mental health discussions to come along. You know, there's mental health days. NAMI is a, you know, a national organization. And what is NAMI? NAMI is the National Alliance for Mental Health. And it is, it's a, it's a, um, kind of a non-professional kind of um, layperson-run organization mm-hmm. that of people who are either struggling with mental health or have people who, in their families who have severe mental health. There's chapters um, and all over the place, and Lexington certainly has one, and kind of connecting with them to allow uh, organizations like that to begin to educate pastors and then for pastors to be able to con- begin to disseminate some of that information to their people. 
um, and their church. And then to really dive into it theologically and to understand what is suffering and illness. Mm. Um, and I think that's a piece that pastors, uh, I think that's educational growth point for a lot of pastors. And I don't know that it's so much because of who they are, but because they're very much shaped by our Western culture that frowns upon suffering, that somehow mm. it's a bad thing that we suffer and that the the goal of any counseling is to take suffering away. Uh, and there's a lot of counselors who have bought into that as well. But that's not true. Suffering is, plays a role in our life. And it's an important role. And theologically, we have a great model of how to suffer, how to mm-hmm. move through suffering in, uh, in Jesus and his, um, his path to the cross. So I think theologically, pastors kind of enriching it there and their own understanding of suffering and illness in the world. Um, that that's where for me as as someone that wants to be a pastor one day I feel sobriety because I'm our theological categories shape the cognitive receptivity of people in our churches, meaning like if they've been shaped to kind of to have a deficient theology of suffering, then they're not going to be primed to be able to fully understand mental health. And so that's where I'm, I feel sobriety to begin to start thinking through those theological categories. For you, so you mentioned suffering and illness. Are there any more that you would, you would just even just kind of put out there to recommend for pastors to be thinking about? Well, I think just broadening our understanding of what health and mental health looks like. And the, the, again, that's an educational process. Uh, I, I can't speak for all churches, but I, you know, my own church experiences, um, you, you tend to kind of get this kind of narrow band of what behavior looks like, and then mm-hmm. anything outside that band is seen and frowned upon. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we kind of have these kind of ethical and moral bands that are important within the church um, as, as we live out a faith that has ethical and moral boundaries to it. But I think mental health tends to get pushed into those and, and um, um, and then when, when it doesn't conform, it's seen as sinful or bad, when in fact there's very strong biological and social components that mm-hmm. bring about a mental illness that a person has to uh, begin to figure out how to manage. So not over-moralizing these domains, but seeing them as health issues. Is that kind of what you're getting at? Yeah, that's, a, that's a cutting uh, the cake right in half right there. <laughs> Great yeah. job. Uh, seeing, it, seeing it as uh, from that perspective, yeah. I think I, in my upbringing, and we talked about this in our last episode, there was a tendency in my specific church to moralize and spiritualize depression as either a moral deficiency or a spiritual deficiency. And there were, and because we saw it descriptively like that, it, our prescriptions were always tended to go off the tracks. Mm. And so it's just interesting. Yeah, and I would say that... Uh, the church has kind of arrived at, has historically arrived at, at an understanding of issues like depression, but even the mental health world doesn't fully understand depression. I mean, True. The, the research articles, you, you'll see that even some of the more recent research is saying that you actually have these kind of two different faces of depression. You have depression that emanates more from a biological, a neurological piece, and then there's depression that's more of a social piece that people who who lose connection mm-hmm. um, and lose place within a community uh, began to suffer uh, for that lo- that sense of loss. 
Do the prescriptions look different for those two faces? It doesn't. It uh, doesn't. Okay. No, you still, you know, the. I would have expected medication to fit the biological one more. Yeah, you would think so too. And I think conceptually, uh, within the world, uh, they're seen as the as the same, and so medication is kind of given to kind of address depression, the big word of depression. But I think there's some interesting research suggesting that that um, there there is sub a subset of people who are treated for depression who don't respond to medication, don't mm, respond yeah. to medication well at all. And that subset, I think, is beginning, I think more research, there's a lot more research that needs to be conducted and is being conducted, but that subset is being seen more as biological, that there's a very strong biological piece that uh, is bringing out um, these uh, depressive sh symptoms and where it tends to help um, are people who may have uh, more of a social uh, connection to to depression. But the other interesting piece of that is you'll even find within the discipline uh, some studies that say that actually what you're really getting in that subset is more of a placebo effect. That um, the use of, of med some medication, especially around the SSRIs, may not really be having the effect on depression as we think it, we, it has, um, and just sheerly from the perspective that you know your doctor will say it's going to take three to four weeks for this to actually kick in. Well, that's a that's a month of time for life to happen <laughs> and things to potentially get better. And so, so there's some research to and researchers who suggest that maybe we're just really seeing a placebo effect with the use of that. Do they study that? Like they have a control group that isn't taking the medication. Actually, is that kind of where it's at? Yeah, that's that's an interesting uh, question as well. I think you you will find uh, some studies that that do focus on creating kind of randomized groups to uh, uh, with control groups and kind of uh, treatment groups to kind of figure out um, and then measure their their mood. And of course, it's all self-report. Self you okay. can't do it any other ways. You can't measure, you know the growth of a cell or something that you may do with cancer. Right. Um, so it's all self-report um, to kind of figure that out. And then, of course, the ethical piece is to take the control group and then provide them with the medication after the control experience. Mm. Um, but Interesting. That kind of got off track a little bit, didn't it? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm the one asking the questions. I'm yeah. loving this. Okay. I, mean, this is, I think this is also really helpful. I mean, for people listening, this is helpful for me to even hear this. Going back a little bit to that spiritual and the growth of the church's conversation, would you say that there's a significant difference in the way that you were looked at as a psychologist in Christian communities when you first got into the field and the way that people maybe talk about what you do now? Uh, so restate that in, a, in, a, uh, in another question. When you first got into the field and got your uh, achieved your PhD, uh, do you feel like you were looked at in a specific way by church members. Oh, yes, yes, that happens. And, and so the truth is, is that when I meet people um, and they ask me who, who I am or what I do, I tend to say that I teach. Mm -hmm. I don't really tend to say I'm a psychologist because that does bring, that brings about its own um, dynamic that make, can make people feel standoffish. I feel like you're, you're reading them the whole time. Yeah, I'm reading their mind um, or their- would be exhausting. Which you are, secretly. It is, that was uh, my meeting. Mind reading uh, 601 um, was the course for that and back in graduate school. What do you know I about excelled me? in that too. <laughs> uh, so, so yes, there, 
I, I tend not to share that piece a lot with people who meet me for the first time because it can kind of create an interesting, I can see that you know, sometimes it creates a difference in how someone responds to me. Do you feel like the perception has changed over time or is it about the same? No, I think it's about the same. Um, and it really kind of depends on the person and what their own history and background is. Um, but um, the, the reaction can still be the same. Mm. So, so I, yeah, it's not something I tend to lead with. And that's something I've heard from several psychologists, um, which I would say even contrasts with people I know who are on the counseling field, uh, because I know a psychologist who's also a professor at Emanuel College, and he usually leads with uh, either he's a professor or he works in human resources or human services. Uh, however, a lot of people I know who are counselors will lead with, I'm a counselor. Uh, I'm kind of interested if you have any ins insight into why that difference might exist. Ah, that's a good question. I, I, I would guess probably uh, psychology as a term within our Western culture is kind of seen and defined differently as counselor. I think it kind of has this more historical. You see, I mean, when you see it in movies, you know, you don't see the professional counselor working, and then of course the whole you see a psychologist usually doing the work with the person mm -hmm. or a psychiatrist, and then of course the movie unfolds in kind of a weird way however the movie may unfold you can probably think of movies like that sure um so i think i think that there's a stigma kind of a connected with that uh, counselor kind of feels culture. more warm kind of personal. yeah, yeah that's my look at it too psychologist has the glasses on yes kind of doing the cold yes yeah because anyway. most people have had psychology one-on-one you know yeah. they've heard of freud and they've heard right. of you know other other psychologists who did this and they're all kind of weird strange people who and come up with these interesting theories. That's why, that's why I like Goodwill Hunting. You just get this, I mean, yeah. Just it's sort of the fear of being psychoanalyzed. Yeah, yeah. I tell people, you know, that I don't do that unless you're going to pay me you know, 125 an hour to do it. It's exhausting work. It is exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> I think of the movie uh, Shutter Island, and okay. you have Leonardo DiCaprio's character, who the whole premise of the movie is you're trying to decide is he or isn't he uh, severely mentally ill and you just don't really know well whenever he has an interaction with the head psychiatrist on the island who uh, has his doctor title wears the small circular glasses and he's always laughing or guffawing at what Leonardo says oh excellent defense mechanisms you know just like a scalpel almost cutting through what's being said to try and reveal what is hidden or maybe with counselors people don't get that feeling hmm. Yeah, I think, and I think you're right. I think counselor has more of a warmer, fuzzy connotation to it. Well, the word pastor has enough baggage, so <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like you guys are. <laughs> it has its own. Yeah, its there's, own some, there's some baggage there, too, yeah. I'm a faith community organizer. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but moving on to sort of the next section we had, there's a lot of different discussions going on currently uh, about mental health and develops in the field. Is there any specific area of interest for you right now that you would love to talk about, or is there something you wish people were talking about more? Uh, within the, the field of, of uh, mental health, uh, I, think, I think a growth edge for our particular world really goes back to the, the, the point that I made a few minutes ago about the idea of suffering. Um, mm. I think within our Western world, that's a word that we don't like and we try to chase away. Um, 
and I think culturally, that, I mean, that's that's what happens if you're in a relationship that doesn't feel to be working, and you you're, it's painful. The idea is you just simply just move away from the relationship, just to avoid the pain and the suffering that may, you may feel from that. Uh, so I think it I think there's a lot of kind of doing things to avoid um, what it means to feel pain um, in this world, and I think I think. Uh, in a lot of ways, the mental health community um, has picked up on that and and thinks along the same way when it comes to working with clients. So I have a client who comes in depressed or anxious, therefore my goal is to not just make them less depressed, but to how what that would look like is to make them feel more happy. Uh, and I, I think that has become much more pervasive in how the industry begins to work with people. And I don't see that as the goal at all. I think the goal is to help a person find meaning in their life uh, in the midst of what they're going through and to, and to, make, and to co- reconnect connect or reconnect with the pieces of their life that give them meaning. Mm-hmm. I think that's really where um, uh, the, the industry, at, uh, where we need to be looking at in terms of how we, we work with people. And there are plenty of good counselors and therapists out there that do that. So mm-hmm. I'm not saying that I'm, I'm certainly not in my, the boat by myself. <laughs> There's plenty that do that and do that well. But I, I see that that's where the kind of the conversation uh, needs to go, um, is kind of back to that. Suffering, pain and suffering is a part of life. Um, we can't escape it. You're going to have, you're going to have events that are going to happen to you. They're going to be painful and they're not abnormal. Mm-hmm. It's not abnormal to grieve the loss of someone you love. It's not abnormal to feel um, pain um, after a uh, difficult breakup. It's not abnormal to uh, to have the expression of a mental illness um, because biologically it's kind of passed on, maybe passed on to you. Those pieces are not abnormal. And I think if we begin to kind of approach it from more from that perspective, then I think it opens up the conversation opens up to um, more around the idea of then if I don't need to stop this, if I don't need to kind of get the suffering to go away, then what do I do in the midst of the season that I'm in? And I think there it means um, turning toward what we value in life and moving to how we create meaning in the midst of this. Mm. It's not mm. a foreign concept. Um, no. We we all experience pain, and and we we make choices on the whether we're suffering or not. Um, if you, I don't know if you guys played sports when you were younger. Um, dabbled. What's what's that? Dabbled. Dabbled. A dabbled. Little bit. Uh, you know, sports. If you played any kind of contact sport, um, there's pain involved. Yeah. Um, but players don't tend to feel the pain, and then, you know, quit because is like, well, I shouldn't feel this pain. Mm-hmm. No, pain is part of the process of the sport. Um, I guess the flip side with that would be for you know women who give birth to their children. Um, there's a lot of pain involved with that. I'm not sure. I, I can't speak for women, um, but I don't. When I look at my wife, I don't think that she felt like she was suffering in the midst of giving birth to our children. I think that she saw that as part of the process mm-hmm. in order to. Uh, to have you know our bundles of joy. Yeah, in Eastern context, you have these terms like dukkha and samsara and the inevitable cycles of suffering people go through, and it's looked at very differently. Uh, it's 
has a framework around it and it exists for a purpose mm-hmm. unto a meaning. And the way you were talking is a very existentialist line of line of reasoning. This, mm-hmm. if there's a meaning and a reason behind this pain, uh, then the way that we look at it's so different. And I think, like you said, it's starting to come into the West a bit. I've been reading um, John Cobbett Zen and Wherever You Go, There You Are. And it's sort of a integration of this Eastern awareness mindset into Western understandings of neuroscience and psychology. And the mm. way that if we reorganize the way that we look at suffering, we can find a lot of meaning and purpose in it, not as something to be removed completely, but something to be brought in in a healthy way, holistically, mm. into one's life. Yeah. I, and, and that's, truthfully, that's what creates resilience. Mm-hmm. We, we don't become resilient if we're not confronted with something to be resilient about. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we, if we are always seeking a pain-free life and all our choices are about avoiding pain, then we really don't have an opportunity to create any kind of resilient qualities within ourselves to withstand uh, something painful. Mm. And so it's only through the process of, of kind of confronting pain and suffering and then f- figuring out how to move through that, not around it, not over it, not under it, but through it, um, then we, we start to develop the ability to be resilient in this world. Yeah. Um, and so that's, that's, to me, a big part of what I do with my clients when I, when I meet with them. And then, of course, a big part of what I talk about in class, and I'm sure Austin's heard bits and pieces of that before. I don't even see that necessarily as an Eastern religious piece. Mm. Uh, I, I do see that, though, as kind of Eastern, uh, even from an Eastern Christian uh, Orthodox perspective, that is very, very, very true. Even from a Catholic perspective in our Western world, yeah. uh, we, you know, you're called to enter into the suffering mm. of, of Christ, yeah. and that's um, that we have the person who led with suffering and has taught us how to to suffer and suffers with us, yeah. and that's a piece uh, theologically. I think a lot the Protestant Church has really not figured out and moved away from. I th- I think this this allow me to add a modifier vicarious suffering is really mm-hmm. powerful and I think in a way hearing your stories and pursuits uh, that's really in a lot of ways what counseling is it's a form of vicarious suffering I mean there probably is a, a physical and emotional trauma in toll that happens when you work with people that are in hard places but you are entering their suffering for their good and that is the picture of the cross yeah and so when I, as, so that would be a piece of what I said a few minutes ago about being Christ to the person in front of me that, I, mm-hmm. that I'm willing to enter into their suffering with them yeah. and to sit with them and to be with them um, through that through that process it, it's interesting a little anecdote I uh, I went to the Netherlands um, this year and and worked at a youth group and and a girl actually came up to me and and basically said that she's been cutting herself and no one knows. And it's interesting because I, in the past, I've, I've worked with youth that cut themselves where it's visible, but she was cutting herself where it wasn't visible and was like, it was covered up. And, and I was just asking her why. And she said that she couldn't feel her emotional pain and that this, this cutting kind of made her feel it, which I don't know if that's normal. Um, but what's interesting is I, it was kind of a first experience with someone like this. And I didn't, I told her that I was like, you should talk with your parents or go and meet with someone but one of the few one thing I said was is I was trying to give her hope I said you're going to be able to empathize with those that do this as well and you're going to be able to sit across from them and give them hope 
and help them in these things. And for some reason, a light bulb went off and she has been messaging me and has been like, I'm not cutting anymore. This is the first time I haven't cut in a long time. I'm actually helping some of my friends that do this. It was weird for her. The suffering, in a sense, did create a meaning to enter other people's suffering. Yes, exactly. And so so you're demonstrating very well the process of, of how we create meaning around what we're experiencing and how that meaning that we create either leads more towards more suffering or moves us away from suffering. And so in that moment, that's what you did. You, you offered here a interesting, a, a very important theological um, piece that you gave to her mm-hmm. that your suffering can have a different meaning uh, mm-hmm. connected to it. And, uh, and she was able to kind of internalize that, it sounds like, and, and begin to move forward. Wow. It, it sounds like in a way it also, because I, I have no training, I'm learning, you know, it's, uh, but it's interesting because in a way it was also acknowledging that it's not abnormal, meaning there are other people like you, they process their pain this way, you know, in this physical manifestation of cutting themselves. And you are, and I told her, you are going, I literally said, I'm not giving you good answers right now but you're gonna be able to give better answers than me because you've, like, you've lived through this. And for some reason, that just like did something, you know? And I don't, you know, you know, it's just fascinating. Yeah, she changed, she began to change her meaning of what it meant to feel suffering um, or whatever that she was feeling. Mm. I can tell that was even really impactful for you. It seemed like that was Well, really it, g- it gives you. meaning to suffering that, because when you, when you own the suffering as inevitable reality of life, you know, there's different ways. One is nihilism. It's just there's no hope. There's no meaning. Another is hedonism. Let's buffer ourselves from the suffering so we can live in happiness. And it seems like, and if there, there's this, I'm sure there's more, you know, alternatives. But another is vicarious suffering. It's owning our suffering, trying to be healthier and more whole, but then entering other suffering for the good of people. And I think in an Eastern sense, in a Catholic sense, that's kind of the core of, of our faiths. I don't think you get much orth, uh, argument from Eastern Orthodox in that regard, yeah. or probably from Catholics as well. Yeah, so, so it is a good message for um, for Protestants. So, to me, the the part of the discussion when we're talking about suffering and and what it means to have meaning in suffering is is beginning to shift our language. So, you you shifted. You began with this particular example. You help her begin to shift her language, and that language created a different meaning. So I think that one of the, the pieces within our own Western culture that moves us, tries to move us away from suffering is that we, we, we have certain language built around it. And I think one of the things that I see most often when I work with my own clients is that they use a simple conjunction that begins to shape um, their whole world of how they experience pain and suffering. And that conjunction is, is simply the word or. Mm. So I, I can f- be healthy or I can be depressed. Um, I, can, I can feel pain and, or um, I can be healthy and doing what I want to do with my life or I can be moving toward my goals. That or becomes a really interesting piece that, that kind of dichotomizes, separates the two, suffering and health, uh, into very silo type of experiences without recognizing that those actually they're actually they actually go together and so part of my work with clients is to help them change that conjunction to the word and Mm. i can be depressed and i can live move toward the goals 
the values that I have in my life. I can have a marriage difficulty, but and I can be the husband or wife that I want to be in this marriage, uh, even in the midst of this difficulty. And so really moves toward kind of beginning to kind of change that particular word, because I hear that word uh, shifts quite mm-hmm. a bit, um, and that, that or categorizes, compartmentalizes, and separates, yeah. and brings together. And I think theologically, the interesting piece, and I'm certainly not a Bible scholar, I'm certainly not a Hebrew scholar, but it, it occurs to me in some discussions with other people I had that in the Hebrew language, in the Old Testament, the word or isn't really much present at all. And yeah. that, th- that they use the actual conjunction and or translated to but, and I believe the word is vav, V-A-V, uh, seems to be how they connect a lot of their of kind of their stories and thoughts together. In the midst of doing so, they allow simultaneous things to exist mm-hmm. at the same time. Yeah, there's a lot of tension there. Yeah, and so we can see that in the Psalms. We see that in the Psalms and in Psalms of Lament. We see that uh, we, he- we, we read a Psalm that says, you know, essentially kind of woes me. You know, God, you've left me. Um, why and I feel alone and I feel this pain and I feel this suffering and then the psalm will shift and, and you'll see you're usually it's translated the word but but you are you have blessed me and you have and I will always follow you you see that that line continuing um, with that and so the psalm that that I'm most familiar with would be Psalms 13 one six it says that exact, that exact same thing. How long will you forget me, Lord, forever? How long will you look the other way when I'm in need? How long must I hide daily my anguish in my heart? How long shall my enemy have the upper hand? I mean, if those were my words, I think I'd be pretty darn depressed. Yeah. I would feel that. And then it goes on to say, answer me. Uh, give me light in my darkness. Don't let me just die here. Uh, don't let my enemies say, uh, we have conquered him, and let them gloat over me. So, th- if those were my words, that's those are pretty heavy words. Mm. Um, but then the psalm goes on to say, "And I will trust in you, and in your mercy, and shall rejoice in your salvation. And I will sing to the Lord because He has richly blessed me." So the the interesting piece is that within that that language is that two things are existing at the same time. They're allowed to occupy the same space. I can feel this way, but I can know this as well. Mm-hmm. And I think theologically and culturally in our particular Western world, we don't allow those things to overlap very well. We see them as very mm-hmm. separate. So I'm either blessed or I'm not blessed. So honesty and hope can occupy the same space in a sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I think that's another interesting way of looking at it. What's funny is uh, when I led my first group therapy session at the uh, ACT team for severe mental illness downtown, they asked if I could do a quick lesson at the beginning about which we could discuss. And I did a similar thing. I had mental illness and then in the middle or life goals. And we all went around and everyone listed off the things that they're dealing with right now illness-wise and then the places they wish they could be or the things they wish they could achieve. And when we were done, erased that middle or and wrote and and then watched the discussion and I just think that shows how salient that the education I've received here has been about incorporating the and 
saying we can be struggling with mental illness, we can have difficulties, we can be in suffering, and we can achieve our goals, happiness, joy, and fulfillment in our lives. And so it's, it's crazy. We did not rehearse this beforehand, that that's what you bring up, because for me, that's been one of the biggest things I've taken away from my education here. Mm-hmm. So just by changing a conjunction. Yeah, you can change the complete meaning of, of the experience for a person, and and uh, therapeutically that's kind of the goal. But it to me, th- uh, in a theological way, that's the goal as well. Um, and again, we have no better model than Christ when he is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's confronted essentially with those choices, the the choices that we're talking about. He's he is um, he's he doesn't he on a very human way he sees he understands he, why he's there but the peace of the suffering is coming toward him and he see and i i have to believe he sees it coming and so his prayer is a very honest one take this cup from me make it pass by me i don't want to drink it and so that was a that was a place of of coming to do how do i remove this suffering from me but there was a second part of the prayer that he had which was not my will but your will be done father and that's the place where he pivoted he pivoted in that direction of living in essentially moving toward who he the meaning of who he was to be and is to be Um, that's where he the place that he went Um, as opposed to seeing the pain and moving away from it he pivoted toward if you will his values if you will from a, a clinical type of discussion and moved in that direction and that's to me our our model that's mm-hmm. that's our model as as Christians. It's certainly our model as people, uh, but our model as uh, as Christians on what we do when these things come our direction. It's a pivot point. We we get to choose which way we pivot. So we are rounding up on just over an hour now, and we want to honor your time. We know that you're a busy guy. You have a lot of things to do, but we appreciate so much your time with us. Just a final question. I notice you have a few books that you brought over here with you. But it would be, uh, who are you reading now? And if people want to follow up on this conversation, what would you recommend that they pick up to read? Oh, goodness. Well, what I'm reading now, I, I read a variety of, of things. Um, and while I do read a lot of like journal articles and things around my, my profession um, to help shape and inform what I do with students and what I do uh, clinically, um, I find that a lot of my reading is really kind of in the area of, of my uh, theology and um, around the issue of suffering. So one of the, this is actually kind of a different, uh, goes in a different direction, but the book I'm currently reading is Bad Religion by Ross Duthat. I don't know if you are familiar with that. Yes, yes. He writes a great book on on how um, our particular culture, our Western culture on a kind of a macro level has theology has shifted over our time and the, the interesting point that he makes is that today people aren't less religious than they were, you know, 100 years ago when this country was, or when this country was younger and felt more religious. He simply makes the point that theology has shifted um, and how theology is understood and lived out is moved away from more of the orthodox stance and more toward a kind of formulating of, of a theology that fits me. So that's that's an interesting book that, I, that I've been reading been reading. I think the book on my list to read is uh, is this one here. I've not um, actually broken the binding yet, but it's on my to-do list by 
uh, Jean-Claude Larquette and his Theology of Illness, mm. uh, which is kind of on my, my reading list. And I think the book that you would be interested in, since you're interested in ethics, and this is the one I'm kind of wading through right now, Ooh. is uh, is the book After God by Tristram um, Englehart, who actually passed away not that long ago. Mm. This is a great book uh, as he begins to um, look at the idea the book is called After God, and then the it's called Morality and Bioethics in a Secular Age, and I'm finding him very interesting as well. Excellent. I love that. Wow. That was an incredible conversation. Uh, thank you so much for bringing your expertise and your wisdom and your humor. You're welcome. You're welcome. Now you Praise can go Allah. <laughs> <laughs> it simply means God. That's right. <laughs> so... Uh, so yes, thank you uh, for uh, allow me to uh, to spend some time with you. I appreciate that. It was fun. This is my first time I ever do this, so it's been a unique and interesting experience. So I hope that whoever listens to this may find some benefit out of it. And then, of course, if you if you want really good stuff, go across the hall to the other professors, and they'll give you the good stuff. The good stuff. <laughs> wow, I can't imagine be better than this. But this has been amazing. Thank, thank you, you so again. much. You're welcome. 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 To Will Morons. All right. Is that it? That's it. Yeah, we didn't do it. Usually we do that. I was like, we can get him to do it. Yeah, I think it'd be more than that.